grit for the day. Lived experience from influencers who overcome with CEO and founder Thomas Lee Johnson. And um, and so we bought a 300 baud modem and I had to open up the Apple II, screwed it in, ran the software. Next thing I know, I see the words going out at 300 baud. And if you've never seen, people don't even know what a baud is anymore. It's, you know, 300 baud is snail's pace. Exactly. But I'm watching that going across the screen. I said, that's the future of the world. And that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So that's how really I wound up going into business at all. I wound Bob Smith, welcome to Grit for the Day. Uh, it is a delight to have you. It's great to see you again. Listen, you know, it's been, what, four or five years since we've seen each other? Uh, what have you been up to? Well, um, we met at a time that I was just launching uh, a thing called the Innovation Commercialization Assistance Program in the state of Virginia. And uh, I was just getting that started when we were talking. Mm -hmm. um, since then, that program's gone on to do great things. Uh, I left that in uh, uh, 2020 to go work at George Washington University, where I run the NSF I-Corps program, National Science Foundation's Innovation Corps program at the university. Excellent, excellent. Being on the lap of Santa Claus, who happens to be my father, my brother sitting to the left of me, and our very close friend uh, in the neighborhood, Mary Ann Traybold, is over on the right. Excellent, excellent. And, yeah, and uh, the story about that was that um, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, uh, right, in it, right on the borderline, not right against it, but close. I could ride my bike into the Bronx and did occasionally as a young kid. And, uh, but my dad worked for the Transit Authority in New York. He was a foreman for the uh, MTA. And so we would go in and pick him up every night. And um, his bar hangout, guys he grew up with, was uh, the Bedford Chop House. It was on Webster Avenue near Fordham Road. And we'd go in there every day. So they, there was kind of a community around the bar. That's the way bars functioned in the good old days. And they had a little community center next to it. So they did Santa Claus. They had a Santa Claus. Well, Santa was my dad, but I didn't know that. So I walked in, and as soon as I walk in, I look, and I could tell it was my father. I just yelled out, Dad, and I ran over to him. And my father was convinced my mom told, uh, <laughs> told me. And, and I was like, no, really, Dad. I, it's like, you can, and if you look at the picture, you can tell he has the same set of eyes I do. There's no, like, hiding this. But, I, I, you know, my brother never caught on. He's kind of, you know, I don't know. He was, I think he was just looking for the candy or something. But, uh, but I'm like, oh, and my dad was so peeved. So... You see me sitting there smiling, holding up my little thing, but in the background, underneath the beard, my my father's going like, "Who told this damn kid?" Like, <laughs> it's the story of my life, like being a smart aleck and talking up when I probably should have kept my mouth shut. But uh, you know, anyway, that's that's what that picture is about. Um, I I um, entered um, ROTC in 1975. Okay. Um, months, almost concurrent with the last helicopter lifting off of uh, from Saigon. So not a lot of people were trying to get in, which is probably how I got in, <laughs> given, given all my background. But um, And it was a weird time to be in there. I mean, it, literally, not even kidding, not even hyperbole, people would say, why do you want to be a baby killer? I mean, no lie. That's the way people thought about the military mm. then. And so it was a weird, isolating thing to be in the military. 
Also, I went to USC, so um, it wasn't too long. University of Southern California. Yes, the only USC. The other well, ones, we sued them. So okay, I'm just you know what you know what state is adjacent. To I us. know, but I mean, no, come on, <laughs> Columbia versus LA. All right, come on, come on. No, but uh, so um, and it wasn't too awful long after the Watts riots. So there were still burned out buildings and things like that, and there's lots of crime, all the gang warfare. Wow. So it was bizarre. It was a bizarre kind of thing to to uh, go and so but i love the navy all i ever had wanted to do was be a naval officer and um so i had i loved being in the navy i didn't so much love being a uh the regimentation of this armed forces mm -hmm. i was kind of uncomfortable with but it was just a weird time and place to go do that but then i went to the one when you got into the fleet and i was on destroyers and it's funny this is like the story of my life is like what a screw up i've been most of my life was uh when they gave me my ship assignment, which was the USS Turner Joy, you can look it up, uh, was the first shots fired in the Vietnam War were the Maddox and the Turner Joy. Oh. Three-gun, uh, three-gun, uh, uh, four Sherman-class destroyer. Mm -hmm. And they, so all I ever wanted to be from the time I was born, or at least to, that, that I could start to read, was a navigator on a destroyer. Wow. And the and the when they told me I was on that ship, they go, "Well, you're on the Turner Joy, the scow, you know, because it was this old ship then." And yeah, you got to build a navigator, and I'm like, "Awesome!" <laughs> and so they thought they were punishing me, and they were really rewarding me, which wow. is, which was a great life lesson for me that like, don't play your game, don't play other people's games, awesome. because according to their game, I was a failure. According to my game, I won. Wow. So, <laughs> it all worked out. But uh, yeah, I love the Navy. Still the best job I think I ever had in my life. Amazing. Being a navigator on a destroyer at a time without satellite, reliable satellite navigation. Yeah. So I did it with a sextant. You know, I. Old school. Old school. Navigated around. I still have my, my calculation books. Um, navigated all around the Pacific through Australia, New Zealand, American Samoa, and back. All did it with a sextant, you know, and so. Best time in the world. Amazing. You know? I, I didn't even know that story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, they had sat-nav then, right? And it would be like, well, we have satellite navigation. And you're like, oh, great. You got satellite navigation. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, when you go below the equator, it, we have no idea what it's going to Because it was all low-Earth orbiting satellites. Right. And they, did, they, they didn't have the geospatials yet. Yeah. And so you're like, oh. Well, where are we? We have no idea. So you have to get out your sex and, uh, <laughs> It made me miss Australia, unfortunately, because I, I, um, we had been socked in with cloud cover. Yeah. We were heading from Singapore to Port Hedland, um, Australia, mm -hmm. and the um, and we the cloud cover was really thick, so we couldn't get I couldn't get fixes, and so we're floating out there and we're we're doing some exercises and whatever, and we finally we're getting near the uh, where we're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And, oh, I misspoke. It was actually when we were heading into Fremantle from mm -hmm. Port Hedland. And so we're supposed to be uh, rendezvousing off, off of Fremantle um, uh, in that morning. And I go, well, this is where I think we are. Right. And so we're going to keep going. So now we're not getting it fixed. We're not, radar is not picking up Australia. <laughs> we're like, well, so they wake me up in the middle of the night. You never sleep when you're a navigator. And I'm like, I run up to the bridge and I'm like, I don't damn if I know. <laughs> so I just said, well, what's your recommendation? I said, well, I think we should go faster. <laughs> and we should go on this course because we knew we were heading the right direction. 
So yeah, I, that's one of my claim to fame is I managed to miss Australia. <laughs> Not by much, but by a little bit. Entry. And um, that was when I really started learning um, how, like, um, how to look at data. And so what I did was um, I taught myself uh, SQL. Uh, the, and the, some of the guys in the computer department helped me and we basically took all of our fulfillment data. Nobody ever got tapes of their fulfillment data and loaded into a database. It didn't happen right. in 1987, right. whatever that was. And loaded it up into a database and I started doing all this analysis and I basically told them you're spending too much money on marketing because you're mailing to the same people all this way. I did a segmentation analysis where I didn't even know what, was, I didn't even know what that was. But I just said, you keep mailing to the same people and they keep re-upping, so you're, you're keep paying to get the same customer. I'm gonna pause here, and I just wanna highlight some stuff. <clears throat> you taught yourself SQL. You loaded fulfillment data when no one else had done that before. I, not that I, I didn't hear it. And you did. did segmentation analysis when you didn't even understand what that was. Yeah. So I had like, you know, one marketing course, but it, it just all seemed to make sense. Right. But you, what I'm saying, you know, Bob, I'm highlighting this because you are inventive and instinctive by nature and you, and you follow your hunches, you follow your intuition and, and actually make it happen. Well, that, yeah. And I found out that was a pattern that kept recurring. Right. Um, in that. And we were talking about before about, you know, like, and one of the things that I, I was jokingly saying to you before, like, about business, it's sort of like being on a galley ship, you know? It's like you're rowing and they go, here's the metrics. Okay, everybody hit the metrics. And then you hit the metrics and the drummer starts going faster. Like, wait, 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 wait. Why is the drummer drumming faster? I just want to hit my metrics. And um, so that part never interested me much. And in, in fact, like, when they, when I, um, at, at CQ, when I, when I did all that work, you know, everybody was, oh, this is great. I wound up then running all the marketing department. I went from the intern to like wow. running, running sales and marketing. Those patterns have always been there. And I, that's, if I have a talent, I guess that's it, you know, and I did the same thing with, with FEC data, like at the same, nobody was doing anything with FEC data, but I was seeing like, um, how the, the how the data is reported, but how it's not picked up, you don't really see the connections. And this is, again, this was nine, maybe 89 or 90. My friend was a lobbyist for the sugar industry, though. And they were saying, we keep getting killed because everybody keeps saying that the sugar industry is giving all this money to politicians. And um, because I've been digging around in all this data, I said, like, well, you know, what we could probably do is probably look at, you know, the uh, Dunn's information that says who all the officers are, and we can go down a level or so. And we can look at their contributions, and we can see um, really who gives actually more money. Right. And it wound up that the sugar users, the the, the Cokes and the uh, you know candy manufacturers, blew away the um, what the sugar growers would do. Right. And we set up this project, and I set it up, helped organize it, and the data folks in our place did it. But it's always seeing those patterns. Yes. And, and, and like, you know, so I, anyway, I could bore you with other things like that, but I mean, so it, it wound up that we did that product and then now that's just standard fare, but nobody, nobody did that then. Wow. And, um, you know, so I, I but for me, it's always been about the, you know, trying something new and, and even in the job where you first met me when I, uh, again, 
people keep telling me, oh, this will be a good retirement job, so I go work in an SBDC. I am not very smart is my problem. <laughs> There's no pay. <laughs> and, and you go in and it's like, okay, well, here I am. You know, uh, I, I, I just have this recurring problem. But even then, I, you know, I could see like, oh, well, you could see the way things... And when they hired me, they, they were hiring me to say, well, how good an administrator can you be of a small business development center. And I'm like, you don't hire me to be a small business development center. You hire me to break stuff and build something. Because I come in and I go, huh, well, yeah, that's my job. I'm like, never mind about my job. What about this thing over here? And that's ultimately how I did the ICAP. Right. Because the ICAP was a program that was limping along. And I went like, hmm, you know, you could take the National Science Foundation i and you could implant that into this program and you could do a statewide uh, I Corps program for the state of Virginia. Wow! And they gave me well, they gave me no money, and they said we'll try it out, and we tried it out, and it was successful. So that pattern is one that you can just take. I could tell a million stories because, and that is the one thing I think I add to any. It, it sure as heck isn't showing up on time, or, <laughs> or filling out my reports well, or doing my travel budget, you know, my travel expenses. I don't, none of that stuff. But you, you know, I can I turn in, I break stuff, I put it back together in something yeah. different. Well, you know, obviously, obviously, any type of you have an an innovation bent. You see things that can be improved and enhanced, just uh, instinctively. That means then you've had to overcome adversity. You've had to overcome some challenges. What was the 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 challenge that you found that you had to overcome, which actually helped you propel your you know which propelled you onto the path of becoming an accredited investor, of becoming um, as successful as you've been? Well, I, I mean, that's success is relative. Um, I, you know, I, I go back, so I've always never been comfortable um, just doing what I'm told. And I always want to, like, I, my, the first business that I really kind of did was my brother and I had a paper route. And I always remember um, I was I was not old enough to be the paper. My brother was old enough to have the paper route, but I tagged along, right? And we argue to this day. I think he gave me the tough. He gave me all the hills, and he had the flat part. I mean, he would deny this, but I swear he did. But I always there was an instance when I was when I had this paper that I always go I always go back to, and I always remember it. And it was um, a really windy day, and the way you did it, I had one of those little Stingray bikes, you know. And it had the, the bag that you're supposed to put the papers in, and they're all sitting there. And the wind's really big, and the bike tipped over, and the papers go down, and the papers are everywhere. They're all over. And I was like, first is panic, right? Oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm doomed. Then the second is like, all right, how do I recover from this? And, and that's, the, that's the difference. And as I said to you, the, one of the Bob, I, I call these things Bobisms when I teach the thing because there's phrases I say all over. And I go, you never give up, but you got to know when to quit. And when that happened, I could have just said, oh, well, this is, this is over. Um, and I, it just happened. I'm going to run home and say, I, the, what could I do? The dog ate my homework or the wind blew my papers away. And instead, I sort of said, well, okay, well, I'll work the problem. And I put the papers back together. I went and chased them all down. I'm not saying that every section was perfectly laid out. <laughs> Some people got three sports sections. I can't help that. But I put them together and I carried out 
the exercise. And that to me is the, every time I look at all the different types of things I've done, and I've done as many entrepreneurial as entrepreneurial things. Right. In fact, my biggest, my biggest success, if you want to call it that, was, um, was entrepreneurial when I was at AOL. And it was the same thing. It's sort of like, you know, the dog's always eating your homework. You know, something is always not right. Somebody's always do, you know, not acting in your best interest. Right. And the difference between people who get stuff done and the people who don't are the people that say, well, that's the way the world is, accept the world for what it is. Right. And make your little corner of it better. And then I think the other thing that's always gotten me through all these things, and it took me a long time to do it. It took me like going from being somebody <laughs> very briefly in my life. And, and that's all relative too, right? And that's what you find out too. Everything's relative. Um and then not being somebody, and that happened twice. One, you're a lieutenant in the Navy, and you know what it's like to be an officer. You know, yeah, even when you're a J.O., you're still the cheese, you know? Like, people are saluting you. And yeah, that's good. You're like, hey, I'm somebody. And then you're nobody. Well, yeah. And the same thing happened to me in um, when I left uh, America Online. I spun off a division of America Online that I came up with, another one of those, oh, pattern matching. And then I left. And I was, cr- I was like, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. And like, so then I was like, okay, so I'm nobody. <laughs> and that was, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to go from, you know, and, and career is very much like that. You, you build time and, and all this and you validate yourself through the job you're in. Right. And I think one of the things that is the difference between an, uh, entrepreneurs and not is like, they're not, that's not what's motivating you. Right. You know? Um, so anyway, that's, that's what I think that, that, that little piece of adversity, I think is, is for me is something that I always go back to is like, you work the problem, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and you, you understand that, that life itself, you don't get anything without adversity, you know? Um, okay. So I'm football. Yeah. The Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah. Remarkable kid. DC kid went to, went to, Gal, uh, uh, Gallaudet. Yeah. Gallaudet. Yeah. Um, you know, and I loved his speech. Mm. It's it should be played for kids everywhere, mm. um, because what he talked about was he was small. Mm-hmm. Everybody was telling tell him he was never going to make it, mm-hmm. and instead of him saying, "Oh, the world's done me wrong," this and that and the other thing, he and his father worked together, and they did a plan, and they, and this was all conscious. And I'm like, that kid will do anything he wants to do in life, because the dog didn't eat his homework. <laughs> you know, oh, you're too short. Oh, I'm too short. He didn't accept it. And I think that's one of the key things that I've, I always go back to is stories like that. Like, just like, you know, just do it, you know? So the, when we think about Angela Duckworth's definition of grit, which has kind of become the, you know, the gold standard, uh, it is, is perseverance and passion uh, applied in a steadfast and, and intentional manner. Um, there has to be some self-awareness for you to have the temerity to apply grit in your life. So it sounds like early on in life, you were self-aware that you have a choice. You could leave the, the rolled up, blown away newspapers on the ground and bike away in disgrace and tears or you could, as you say, work the problem. Mm. Bob, why did you make the choice to work the problem and not give up? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, 
I do know that I I was um, I've always been introspective. Pro- probably all the times I've been a boorish lout, people would say not so much, but hopefully <laughs> 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 a boorish lout less than I was when I was younger. Um, but and and everybody does that, right? And that's the that's the other thing. It takes it takes a long time to forgive yourself for stupidity in your life, and I'm no different than anybody else that way. I still rack my brain about like how could I have been that stupid how could I have been that insensitive or whatever it is um but that's but the it's the mere asking those questions it's the it's the you know how do they train people about PTSD right they make them relive the thing and and make it less and less um it becomes less and less um effective when it becomes more and more real and it's thought out and I learned that at a, um, I think, you know, and this is a weird story. I've never told anybody this story, but um, I used to have a lot of nightmares when I was a kid. And at first I would run in and say to my mom, you know, like, oh, I had a nightmare. And mom would let me snuggle in. My dad never liked that. We were talking about that the other day. <laughs> they, they had twin beds. And my dad's an old Navy chief, right? And uh, his, his story would make, we were talking about movies before. My dad's life story should be a movie. It was fabulous. It was just crazy. But um, I'd go in and he'd be go like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I had a nightmare. Go back. Everybody has nightmares. You know? I'm like, oh, you're right. And what I started doing is then I would have nightmares. And when I would have them, instead of running in, I would start thinking through like, well, what was that? Why, why, did, I, how, why did I lose in that nightmare battle? How do I win in that nightmare battle? Wow. And I would go in and I would just start trying to, and I wouldn't go back to sleep until I solved that problem, you know? Wow. And so um, I, then to me, that's the beginning of introspection. Mm. And and I and I still rack my brains about like I, it's funny I, I was doing it driving the other day about um, a, a, a young girl we were out you know a bunch of people out drinking and I, I was I was in, I was not a gentleman let's put it that way not in a terrible way like, like that but just just not in the way I always want to behave right. and um, I still rack my brain about that well why did I do that why was I thinking about that. And I think that, that more often than not, we, more, one of the things I, we, we talk a little bit about societal changes and things like that. And one of the things I don't like is we keep letting people off the hook. Yeah. You shouldn't be let off the hook. You did wrong. Own it. That yes. doesn't mean you have to be draconian or anything like that. Right. But that's one of the things that I teach in, when, we, when, I, when I teach entrepreneurship or innovation. It's like, no. You know, why did you fail? Well, this happened, that market condition. No, 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 no. The dog never eats your homework. Yes. You failed. <laughs> Why did you fail? Right. And, and um, for me, that, and, and most of the entrepreneurs I know, I always say, you always know you're in a room of entrepreneurs, real entrepreneurs, not fake entrepreneurs, I think. Real entrepreneurs always talk about their failures. They're not afraid of their failures, right? They embrace them. Right. Because only by embracing your failure do you figure out the pathway to be successful. Exactly. And that was just natural in me. I think because I have uh, somewhat, lo- I, I, you know, for all the braggadocio and coming on and doing a podcast, which, you know, it's very nice of you to invite me. <laughs> I, I um, you know, I don't really, I'm, I, I tell people I know myself better than anybody and I'm thoroughly unimpressed with myself. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you know, and if you're not thoroughly unimpressed with yourself, I think, you, you know, you, you've got a problem. Right. It's, it's like, you know, you're the thing you're trying to perfect. Yes. And you're never going to get there. So if right. you're not introspective and looking at why you fail. Yes. And embracing the failure. Yes. And fail, you know, then you will never really achieve anything. You'll be on the galley ship. 
like trying to get the message. Faster! Faster! Where's that drummer going? Where did they get Billy Cobham from on the drums? You know, like it's like, no, enough. Um, yeah, and that's why, uh, and that's, so anyway, I guess that's a long-winded answer to you. <laughs> That's fascinating. So just to kind of recap, uh, when when you think about the value that shaped your ability to choose to not let the dog eat your homework, the value that comes to mind is introspection, embracing failure, addressing what it is that you potentially did wrong and or was wrong, and ownership, ownership to fix it. Yeah, when I say embrace failure, there's there's some people embrace failure, but they embrace it to justify failure. Okay. Right? Oh, well, I that was me. I was bad. I'm never going to do anything again. Right? And, and that's a hard thing to uh, and I've had that, those feelings. Mm-hmm. That's so by by I thought I thought your four things were were great. I think the but when I say embrace failure, you embrace failure to say like, you know, own own it, that ownership of the failure. But then how do I how do I not do that again? Right. Or how do I make that better the next time? Yes. And and I think that's the key. But yeah, I think that's a great way to summarize that. Okay. Thank you. Um, you know, we're in 2023 now. Uh, I'm sure you read Forbes, Fortune, The Economist. All the macroeconomics uh, of the moment that we're in right now say that there are sector sectors and segments and potentially even industries. Uh, in the world economy, which are going to go downward. I mean, just it, 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 unavoidably. Yeah. Um, what do you say to entrepreneurs who are in those industries and or sectors that won't let the dog eat their homework, have the ownership, and still are swimming up a waterfall? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the um, best sequences of my career came actually after my venture fund failed in the first bubble. Uh, I was funded by Warburg Pincus. Um, they set me up. It's my own fund. It was an early stage fund. Wow. And it was actually, um, this was 2000, and I actually called it an accelerator. Um, and somewhere, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, there's an article because there was, it was either Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, that an accelerator, what the heck is that? You know, and um, there was only Safeguard Scientific was doing it, but it wasn't a commonly used term. Right. But, um, you know, and, and my first board meeting was the day the market tanked in, um, <laughs> in 2000. And all my board members were sitting there on the, <laughs> what, what's going on, on guys? The yeah, right? on the blackberries. <laughs> what's going on, guys? And like, market has just fell off a cliff. <laughs> so needless to say, my investors not, not um, I thought Warburg had, had expressed they would have, they wanted me to get into their fold. I really, at that point, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, uh, to go run a company. I didn't want to run. I don't run companies. I start companies. Yeah, I don't <laughs> run them. I start them. Which, remember the Bobism, nobody ever made money <laughs> starting a company. company. <laughs> only make money running companies, which is why I don't have a Bentley. <laughs> that's, why, that's, the, that's the, you know, and I tell this to all the people who come to my program. I called it the toaster strategy. Was what was happening was you know the um, AOL hadn't imploded yet right. by their own doing, but um, you could see the the new things that were coming on and really but what was really to me 
um, missing in, in what AOL was doing and was um, were the components that were going to make up the internet. So I called it the toaster strategy, which nobody understood. But I go like, yeah, you don't build the big thing, you build the small thing. And then you'd use the bus, the stand in front of the bus strategy, <laughs> right? You build the thing, you put the thing in front of the big plotting corporate nonsense and they have to buy you <laughs> so i was batting a thousand during the aughts because i i backed not so great companies because i once i got out of the big leagues you, the deal flow is not the same right but things that were going to build toaster components right and um so two of those were an identity theft the first identity theft, two of the first identity theft companies I, I put money into. Nice. Uh, one became Equifax's um, uh, identity protection um, platform. In fact, Equifax was a co-investor, and that came from my Warburg experience. Awesome. Another was called Promise Mark, and Promise Mark's whole thing was uh, it was the protection, it was the insurance if somebody stole your identity and things like. That. It was the first first one. Wow. And we uh, managed to sell that limped limped along because there was no money in the market. One, but I've always been interested in geospatial analytics because I mentioned you know, my navigation background, and I backed uh, backed a mapping company. Wow! And um, and so and it was a quirky little mapping company. We wound up selling it to Navtech for forty million and made good money on that. Awesome. So I was, but that's the strategy. When 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 everything implodes, doesn't mean the industry goes away. Yes. But you know, probably the top line um, characters in the market. Um, yeah, maybe you get lucky and, and, and you, you know, you break through. Like, if you're Google, you break through search. Yes. Everybody thinks there weren't search companies at the time, but I was working with Excite. I remember um, Excite. Yeah. You know, I, and uh, mm. I was, you know, I was sitting in, in their offices with George Bell, who was the CEO, and Vinod Kosala, and we're sitting around talking strategy for Excite. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, Google <laughs> over here and changing the game. So it's not like you can't change the game even when there's established players. Right. But um, but more often than not, and especially if either the dice go great for you or your super genoids, for the most part, what you're going to do is you're going to try to find niches in that those spaces right. because they're not fully developed, and the toaster strategy will work. Yes. Each component of the toaster makes ultimately the build, toaster. Build a toaster, stand in front of a bus. Stand, stand, <laughs> and build a toaster, you know, build a component to a toaster. Build a component to a toaster. And stand in front of the guy driving the toaster <laughs> or the bus. You know, like, and and um, that also worked with, um, after I left AOL, we did that with um, OneMade, yeah. which was one of the companies, again, I inherited from the venture, uh, my little brief venture realm, but um, put more, more money into it, became friends with the CEO. And what we were developing was um, Meg Whitman, I guess, told my partner, you guys should really form a thing for, because eBay is not doing great on handmade goods and artisan goods and stuff. So that's what my my business partner did and it was called Hui at first which they actually had to change the name because they found out in Russian that meant you know doing the act <laughs> so it's like okay we're not going to do that so they uh, they changed it to one made but anyway the um, what we found there was so it was Etsy 10 years before Etsy wow. and the problem was though at the time was the market wasn't differentiated enough to support a niche program like that a okay. niche product like that mm -hmm. And, and you had to be really well capitalized, and at that point, we weren't. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we pivoted to uh, seller tools. Mm. And again, this goes to the standing in front of the bus strategy. We, um, eBay launched a public API. Okay. Now, in 2000, 
One, public APIs were brand new. Nobody knew what they were. Right. We built for the public API of Amazing. eBay. So our seller tools could not only go to eBay, but we also then took over, um, did a deal with AOL mm -hmm. to run their classifieds. So basically we could port to nice. multiple different um, nice places. Yeah. So we stood in front of the bus. <laughs> AOL was gonna renegotiate with eBay. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and truth be known, some of this was friends at AOL probably throwing me a bone. <laughs> but we were AOL's classifieds. We were developing tools using the the, um, the API of eBay yeah. to basically superset eBay. Nice. So we got enough of a eBay being interested to make AOL bias. So we sold the company to AOL. Awesome. And, um, you know, and that's the, what I would encourage, not directly, but I mean, I would encourage companies to do, especially in a time when there's not going to be as much early stage capital. Right. When um, you got to find ways to bootstrap, you got to find ways to do early partnerships, and you got to think small. Yes. And again, one of the little Bobisms that I always say is, people always confuse broad with big. Right. And I see this all the time. Companies come to me and they explain something, and it's so broad, and you go like, "Well, that's that you described nothing. You described, you know, water. <laughs> I, I I can't do anything with water." You know, explain to me how your little mill, a, a mill that serves, a, you know, somebody doing flour somewhere, and I can understand the power of water. Right. And people don't want to think that way because they think it sounds like it's it's smaller, but it's not. And and in this kind of market condition for startups, I'd be saying, find those niches, hit the niche hard, stand in front of the bus. Yes. And, and get bought. You know, that's a great exit. Exactly. And who the heck wants to go public now anyway? Yeah. You know? The IPO market is, 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 is troublesome. Well, and it forces you into certain types of management structures right. that are not nimble. Exactly. I, I, when Sarbanes-Oxley occurred, you know, I, I knew some of the people on the Hill that were involved. And I go, why did you guys do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Because what, what you're doing is you're, yes, you're giving protections. and But Enron wasn't a problem of the regular IPO. Right. That was corruptions and a bunch of other things. And multi-layers. Yeah. And, and so really the, what, what they did was they made it so that if you're, um, if you're a startup person, your, your pathway to public um, is very much far, uh, farther in the distance, for mm -hmm. one. And the ad administrative overhead you have to put on the company early on mm -hmm. makes you a big company when you should be a small company. Right. And a uh, not a nimble company, but a, a sort of bureaucratic company. Exactly. And and so I never really had an interest in that. But yeah, you know. yeah. Well, <clears throat> this has been a fascinating conversation. I know it's a good conversation. Anytime you say, I've never told anyone this story before. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird story. <laughs> but we're glad you told us. Um, you know, grit for the day is about influencers who have overcome adversity. Uh, the the viewership that we have uh, is really going to going to gravitate toward your your the values that you expressed early on, and that you replicated over and over again. If you had parting wisdom uh, for some of our entrepreneurs, you say uh, fueled your entrepreneurship uh, at AOL uh, at at the other major companies that you've been a part of. Yeah. So. Um at CQ, I actually wound up leaving because I launched a magazine. I basically said to them, well, you're giving up the consumer market and there's no other place for you to grow 
under the way you're structured now in this market. So I came up with a, basically a consumer reports for politics idea, and it was called American Caucus. And I just put my career on the line um, and said, well, I'm, I'll go launch this. And again, it wasn't well-funded, and it wasn't, um, and they ultimately pulled the plug, even though everything we did showed we could market it. And in fact, they got angry letters from everybody that signed up. They said they really loved it. Didn't fit with, the, with where the corporation wanted to go. Mm. At AOL... Um, my job at AOL was signing up media companies. Uh, so I signed New York Times, um, Chicago Tribune, all the major newspapers. That was my first responsibility. Second responsibility was all the major magazines, Hachette Filipaki and all these other ones. At the time, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, But what I said to um, when we were losing out to our competitors, Prodigy and such at the time, I said to Steve Case and some of the senior people I was working with, like, you know, look, you know, you're you don't need to play that game because basically this is how they're going to build their online sites. You could do the same thing at a, at much less cost. You could own more of the equation and you could also leverage it. So they had to come to you anyway. Right. And that was the genesis of digital city, which was my one big claim to fame. Awesome. Um, and you know, and talk about like adversity because remember for those people that you're talking about, the, the, it's like the Borg. The Borg does not like somebody getting out of line. <laughs> they especially don't like when they see, like, you know, who's that chump Smith? What's he doing? What does he know? <laughs> and why are they giving him a division? So the natural tendency is, and they have expansionist plans as well. Right. So you come in and you cordon off something in, a, in, a, in, in an entrepreneurial fashion like that, and, and you're going to get hostility, and you're going you're, and, and you're to fight every day of your life. And it's one of the reasons why I actually... I left. I got so burned out for mm. you know three years of just brutal, like you know, fighting every day to, to make this thing survive. Mm. And um, it wound up being like ten percent of AOL's value. Um, so it's like twelve billion dollars worth of value. Wow. I did not get that because you don't make money starting companies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did okay, but I did, but I didn't get any of that value, and I didn't stay. If I'd stayed and and gotten on the galley ship, I would have been okay. <laughs> but so I would say to people that that are thinking about that, just understand that going in, un- but un- also understand the corporate culture you're in. Um, how does innovation happen inside of your organization, and how to best lay the groundwork for that? In my case, I w- uh, had. Two really great mentors take me under their wing. I had um, David Cole, who's one of the early VCs in, in Silicon Valley, brilliant guy, mm. um, and Ted Leonsis, who now runs the the Capitals. Yeah. And um, basically, they said, "You want to do this? We'll, you know, we'll, we got your back." And I mean, I had some big scrapes. I mean, I was going up against like the president, like Bob Pittman was running the company. I mean, I was, wow. I got called on the carpet and he just dressed me down. It's like, who the hell are you? Do you know who I am? And I'm like, I don't care who you are. I'm just like, <laughs> I just want to do this, you know? And, and, but he ultimately, they ultimately all came around. Mm-hmm. But I look for those champions that are going to back you up. Look for those mentors inside of the organization and, and help them understand your vision. And then scale your vision and your go-to-market strategy. Everybody forgets go-to-market strategy. Exactly. Because remember, a product is not a business. Right. An idea isn't even a product. Yes. So you have to start with, well, how do I go to market? Right. And go-to-market begins with, how do I lay the groundwork for this? Right. And then, and then who, do, who are my key allies? And how do I nurture my allies how, just as they're nurturing you? And how do you carve out 
a significant enough niche within the organization that they have to innovate. In, in what, what I did with Digital City, um, in fact, what AOL wanted me to do was merge with City Search. So there's a famous meeting with us going to see the City Search guys, and they're, we're all brilliant. Thomas Layton came up with the go-to model, which is ultimately what Google did for yeah. revenue. Um, you know, and Charles Kahn, big name, did, did great stuff. Yeah. So we're all meeting with them, and they're all giving their first and last formal names and talking about their graduate schools, which were all Ivy League. And I'm like, I'm Bob. <laughs> I went to GW, the guy with me, yeah, that's Bill. And, and um, you know, and that's the way we, that's the, uh, but I convinced them not to go with the easy solution of just buying somebody. Yes. And by doing that, um, you know, they, I got it done. And so that's it. Work, work the problem inside of the organization. Work the problem inside the organization. For, and first. Right. And then get the buy-in on the things you want to have happen and be patient and never give up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation. Grit for the day. Lived experience from influencers who overcome. With CEO and founder, Thomas Lee Johnson. <laughs>